Welcome to Verso, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Beth Lissick. On each show, we bring together two guests from different parts of the art world to have an informal, socially distanced conversation about what they're thinking about right now. Today, I'm speaking with Philips Global Chairwoman Cheyenne Westfall and Senior Advisor Ug Jaffer, both based in London. Cheyenne and Ug, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I wanted to start by having you talk about yourselves a little bit. I'd love to hear how you both ended up as experts in 20th century and contemporary art. Cheyenne, would you like to start? Sure, with pleasure. For me, it really happened during university. I was very lucky to have a proper classical art history education at St. Andrews in Scotland with a real emphasis on the history of art. But I then got a scholarship to go to UC Berkeley. And it was um, really during my first contemporary art lecture with Professor Anne Wagner, and we saw Cindy Sherman on the big screen. And it was, you know, for me, it was really a moment of, wow, I'm not quite sure what this is, but I know I want to be in this. And that was kind of the real impetus and um, looking for a job. You know, I started applying to the auction houses. I arrived at Sotheby's and they were very concerned what they could do with me if I didn't get into the contemporary art department, which was where I really wanted to be. Um, and in the end, I found a holding pattern for me in the Impressionist to Modern Art field until a space became available. And from there on, I worked my way up. But I was also very lucky to be in London at a moment in time when things were truly changing. This was in the 90s. It was the YBAs. It was Tate Modern opening in 2000. You know, it was really um, a period where you had time to learn, where you had an opportunity to be part of something, and you really had a chance to see things develop. And what about you, Ug? Well, for me, the passion started when I was about 10. I traveled quite extensively with my parents to many museums in Europe and little by little convinced myself that I wanted to build a career within the art world. And when I got to the age of 18, my parents wanted for me to continue my studies and basically managed to convince me to do that although I was pretty intent on finding a job somewhere in the art world. I realized that what would make me happiest would be working in an auction house where you handle the objects rather than, you know, look at them from a distance and write long essays. <laughs> and I got stuck on the concept of doing the Sotheby's course. When I got my master's, I said, it's about time. The Sotheby's Institute um, said, um, well, why don't you just do your military service first and then we'll see. Then I decided to do it. And uh, by the end of the year, I managed to get myself a job as a junior specialist again at Sotheby's. Very quickly, I transferred into the contemporary art department, which was virtually non-existent from the modern art department. And at the young age of 25, I ran that department for Europe. <laughs> I'm now nearly 40 years later, having spent three quarters of my working life in auctions. I'm very happy that 
we are making strides at Philips in the modern art world and even happier that a number of either ex-colleagues from Christie's, um, ex-competitors from Sotheby's <laughs> um, and uh, existing Philips um, specialists are now together trying to build something that will last for the next generations. And can you give us a picture of what the auction business was like when you first started? Well, it was the early 80s. So contemporary art as such, meaning the art produced by a living artist in the last 10 years, say, was not coming for auction. So contemporary art was at the time what we called post-war art. It represented a minuscule, tiny uh, share of the business. It gradually you know, developed in the 90s. In the 90s, we hit the first crisis, the first Iraq war, which created the first mega wave of my career, although it was by no means the first crisis of the art market. But contemporary art at that time was a substantial element of the global auction turnover you know, very far behind modern art, say, for example. By the time we reached the 2000s, contemporary art was probably nearly as important as modern art. And today, auctions of post-war and contemporary art far exceed auctions of modern art in terms of volume and, and value. So that's the number one mega, mega, mega difference um, between then being you know, very secondary, I mean, tertiary, I could say, 40 years ago, nearly. So that's changed a lot. The other thing that's changed a lot is really the role of the various actors. The auction houses have changed tremendously, and the globalization has obviously brought many, many, many new collectors to the table. Can one of you give me an example of a landmark sale or auction moment that really changed the market forever? Like something that happened that was definitely a turning point in how auctions changed? Well, I'll start because historically, the first two landmark auctions in my world, which is modern and post-war, are the Goldschmidt sale and the first skull sale. They both happened before I actually arrived in the art world, but the Goldschmidt sale took place in 1958, and it was the first auction held by Sotheby's under the stewardship of Peter Wilson of modern art only. Now, at the time, what they called modern art was really impressionist paintings. Um, and it was a single owner sale, which was held for the first time in the evening, black tie, the catalog was for the first time entirely in color, and it consisted of only 13 paintings by Cezanne, Monet, this sort of modern artist in inverted comma, and it actually broke all records for any auctions ever. The amount would be tiny now, but it was a sensation, and then, Again, before my time, the other groundbreaking auction was the first um, single owner sale consisting of artists who were mostly alive. And that's the first auction of the Robert Skull collection, which took place again at Sotheby's, but 
Sotheby's was called at the time in America Park Bennett, Sotheby's Park Bennett. And it included artists like Jasper Johns, Rosenquist, etc., who at the time were in their 40s or 50s. I mean, now we think of them as icons, but at the time they were probably considered like young <laughs> contemporary artists, not terribly established. And that sale broke many records for individual artists. In addition to this, uh, remains in the memories of the people who have talked about it as being an incredibly controversial auction for several reasons, that prices by living artists in their 40s could fetch such prices was considered, you know, completely crazy. Uh, even the artists thought so. It also created a little bit of a pandemonium in New York because Robert Skull, who was the owner of one of the New York cab companies, was seen by his employees as making a ton of money and being terribly strict on their pay rises out, you know, in other ways. And finally, it was the first picketing outside of Park Bennett by feminist groups because there were no women artists included in that collection. I mean, we now know, um, you know, of many more events of this kind, but at the time it was quite a sensation. I think the most recent groundbreaking auction was actually held by Cheyenne in person. <laughs> so I'll let her talk about it. I'd love to hear about that, Cheyenne. Yeah, no, that was truly, truly something. And um, I was very fortunate to work directly with Damien Hurst in um, 2008 when he decided to break any existing mold and make works of art directly for auction. So no making art for a gallery show. This was, I make the objects, I take them to auction and anybody who wants to buy a bid can. And it was an incredibly ambitious sale. He created more than 220 works from all categories, be it formaldehyde works, the spot paintings, the spin paintings, and um, from all amounts from, you know, really affordable to multi, multi-million dollars. And um, it was something that people had never seen before. You entered Sotheby's at the time, and you entered Damien Hurst's world. The sale became even more famous, and controversy went through the roof. I mean, there were open fights with primary galleries, you know, this was breaking into a world that didn't have a comfort zone for many. And the crazy thing is that the actual sale took place on September 15th, 2008, which was the day that Lehman Brothers went under. And as we now know, was the beginning of a huge financial crisis. But at that moment in time, the world was still in shock. I remember walking into the auction house in the morning and a journalist waiting outside and shoving a microphone in my face saying, how does it feel to be bringing down the art world um, today? It was a very frightening moment, but at the same time, there had been such excitement built over this period of exhibition. We'd kept the building open 24 hours a day so more clients could come in and see it. 
and the beginning of the auction, it, it started slow, but well. And we got to lot number five, which was the first major work, a large shark in formaldehyde. And the work just did extraordinarily well. It sold for eight million pounds. And um, after that, it was just no holding back anymore. And it was extraordinary. The sale raised over $200 million for the artwork that was sold on the day that we literally went into a financial meltdown. It was extraordinary. So where does Philips fit into the story? I think the exciting part of Philips, or really the whole part of what we are about, is that we are the only auction house that focuses exclusively on the 20th and 21st century. And what that allows us to do is to really curate our sales from what I like to call the viewpoint of the 21st century collector. Looking back, you know, we don't have to keep categories alive because they're part of the system. We look back at the 20th century and we look at the works of art that are relevant and exciting to the collector today. And we bring this together in a really fresh and different mix where you could find, where you have found such extraordinary artists as um, Picasso, Matisse, at the same time, Mark Bradford, setting records, setting prices in one extremely tightly curated sale that is different to what any other houses are really offering. And um, you'll want to talk about that Picasso a little bit more, no? Yes, that famous painting of a reclining Marie-Thérèse, Picasso's lover, painted in the early 30s, which was included in the Philip sales in March 2018, together and paired with an extraordinary sculpture by Matisse of a new allongé from the early 1900s. So in the same cell, we had a masterpiece by Matisse of the early 1900s, a masterpiece by Picasso of the pre-war period, and a masterpiece by Mark Bradford, one of the great American contemporary artists. It, it is sort of like when all stars are aligned. These objects were each extraordinary in their own right. And um, they came to the market very much on relationships held between one of Philips's staff member with the owner and sometimes longtime owner. They were fresh to the market. Picasso had not been seen for something like 30 years, 40 years. The Matisse sculpture had not been seen for over 100 years. It's probably one of the, if not the most famous tabletop size sculpture by Matisse, Nu Allongé 1, of which there are several casts, most of which are in museums. And this particular cast had not been seen since 1905. And nobody, not even the Matisse family, not even the specialists that had written the catalogues and they had ever, ever, ever seen it. So it was a long labor of love to go through the motion of showing that object to everyone that could contribute, either through knowledge of the material, knowledge of the foundries, knowledge of the artist, and finally, authority, expertise from the family, took seven months, eight months, nine months, I think, to actually do the whole work. 
and be absolutely 100% sure that this object, which was last seen in 1905 <laughs> in New York in a gallery that had closed in the late 20s, was actually the object that we were offering. That's part of the incredible pleasure of our job. And from my perspective, I often get asked the question, how come you have stayed in this one industry for such a long time? And for me, the answer is because it's been ever, ever evolving. You know, my role maybe hasn't sort of changed in its core. It is still about, you know, finding a wonderful work of art, maximizing its value, finding the right owner. But all the ingredients are evolving and it's incredibly, incredibly exciting to be part of that artwork that experiences it firsthand at all times. You know, we're often seen by the other figures in the art world as the clear indicators of where things are heading. You can see this with the successes of very young artists achieved for the very first time at auction and people taking really note of them and um, creating sort of moments where people say, oh, wow, there is now a new shift. Maybe the taste is changing. And then, of course, as you touched upon, um, the extraordinary fact for globalization that we are experiencing here. It used to be a world that was very much, in terms of collectors, driven by Europeans and Americans, tiny amount from Asia, maybe. And now we're really talking about a truly global audience. It's incredible fun to watch a Philip sale on your iPhone and just to hear the online bids coming in and the auctioneer reading them out. And there you have Hawaii bidding against Bangkok. And um, this is all, you know, happening right there in that moment. And we're here um, experiencing it and learning from it constantly, evolving with it. So it's a fascinating world to be part of. Well, I have had so much fun talking to both of you. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into Verso, an arts and culture podcast from Philips. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Bye for now. <laughs>